Scripture text for this morning is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason many among you are sick and weak, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Father, there was a time when people killed each other concerning the meaning of the Lord's Supper. The blood flowed. We don't live in that time. And I wonder if we're better off for treating it so lightly. Father, I ask that you would help me now to unfold the meaning of this table from your word so that its proper understanding and its proper use would be our portion here at Bethlehem and throughout the church. We want to know what we're doing, Father, in a few minutes when we take the bread in our hands and the cup to our lips. We don't want to eat or drink judgment to ourselves. 
So, Father, give us an appropriate earnestness and faithfulness to your word. And I pray that you would be getting people ready to eat and drink as believers in this room. And any who is without Christ would hear the word of the risen Lord speaking to him or her this morning, drawing them to the Savior and to life. In his name I pray, amen. There are two ordinances that Jesus has appointed for us in the church. One is baptism and the other is the Lord's Supper, as it's called in the text that Andy just read to us. Two weeks ago, about maybe three now, I was convicted that for years now I have not preached on the Lord's Supper. I was reading a book on baptism on a porch in Asheville, and uh, the more I thought about baptism and its relationship to the Lord's Supper, the more I, I pondered, hmm, 1997, I preached four messages on baptism. I haven't preached four messages ever on the Lord's Supper. And so I was drawn to reflect and to try to fix it. And so today and next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to focus on this text and some related texts with regard to the Lord's Supper. Now, I think a little history will sober us and perhaps make us serious about this. In uh, 1531, March 20, 1531, there was a man named Seek Snyder. Snyder means tailor. Uh, he cut cloth. Um, his real name was Freerk, F-R-E-E-R-K, in the Netherlands, and he was beheaded for being baptized as a believer. The court record reads like this in the court of Friesland. Seek Freerks on this 20th of March, 1531, is condemned by the court to be executed with the sword. His body shall be laid on the wheel and his head set upon a stake because he has been rebaptized and perseveres in that baptism. Twenty years later, across the English Channel, 1555 to 1558, during the reign of Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, 288 Protestant reformers were burned at the stake. One was an archbishop, Thomas Cranmer. Four of them were bishops. Um, Twenty-one were clergy. Fifty-five were women. Four were children. They included names like John Rogers, John Hooper, Roland Taylor, Robert Farrar, Nicholas Ridley, and Hugh Latimer. John Philpot, Thomas Cranmer. They were burned by the Roman Catholic Queen Mary. Why? There was one central issue in those three years. The Lord's Supper. 
Let me read to you from J.C. Ryle's statement of why 288 of his countrymen were killed by burning at the stake. The doctrine in question, he writes, was the real presence of the body and the blood of Christ in the consecrated elements of bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. Did they or did they not <clears throat> believe that the body and blood of Christ were really, that is, corporally, literally, locally, and materially present under the forms of bread and wine after the words of consecration were pronounced? Did they or did they not believe that the real body of Christ, which was born of the Virgin Mary, was presented, was present on the so-called altar as soon as the mystical words had passed the lips of the priest? Did they or did they not? That was the simple question. If they did not believe and admit it, they were burned. Close quote. Now, I mentioned these two facts. The fact of the martyrdom of Baptists who believe that the only people that should be baptized are believers and the martyrdom of Protestants in England by burning who believed that the physical, material body of the historic Jesus is not present under the form of bread and wine. I mention these two historical facts simply to say there was once a time when baptism and the Lord's Supper were serious business. And what they meant was serious. People died because they held a view of the Lord's Supper or baptism. And people killed because they held a view of the Lord's Supper and baptism. I'm thankful that I'm a Baptist. One of the reasons I am is because Baptists are one of the few groups who, as they look back over the history of their existence, whether you say it's 500 or 2,000 years, we've never been on the killing side in that equation, ever, ever. Many of my heroes have been, John Calvin, Martin Luther, they've been on the killing side. I don't damn them for that. We all have our blind spots, some of them worse, some of them not so bad. But my point is, um, the baptism and the Lord's Supper were once taken really seriously. We might say, well, that was, their fault was brutality. You know what our fault is? Superficiality. And as I've pondered, the possible eternal consequences of living in a brutal age where things are taken with blood earnestness and living in a superficial age where nobody, in America at least, is killed and nothing is taken seriously, I'm not sure which age does the more eternal damage. It's not obvious. You may think it's obvious that to live in an age where they chop off your head for being a Baptist is an age that would produce worse eternal consequences. I don't I don't know. Maybe. 
I think the issues of the heart can be destroyed by superficiality and triviality and carelessness, and they can be destroyed by brutality and pride. So it isn't obvious to me that we live in a a better time when eternity is taken into account. I'm thankful that we don't kill. I want to say very clearly, and it isn't just Baptists anymore, although we have a wonderful word to speak into our incredibly embattled world right now. Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, Christian, Jew, secularist. We live in extremely explosive times. And I am thankful that as a Baptist I can bring 500 years of testimony to say Christians believe with tremendous depth and strength in the unique mediatorial role of Jesus Christ between God and man. And there is no other salvation. And we will die for that. We will not kill for it. Ever. Under any circumstances. That's the witness of the Baptist Church and most other Christian churches now. Perhaps I should say a word as to why it happened. You you might just sit there thinking, how in the world? Could it happen? Take baptism. In the 16th century, the secular authorities in Europe and the religious authorities in Europe were so interwoven, they were virtually indistinguishable. The implications of that were huge. All citizens were baptized into the church. The church was coextensive with the population. The rulers in the church and the rulers in the state together therefore ruled over everybody. If baptism is a voluntary act to give expression to your personal faith in Jesus, the church becomes a voluntary assembly to which some belong and some do not. And immediately you have a mega crisis in authority from the top down as to who governs whom in this culture. And they saw it. The answer was very simple. To be baptized as an adult and believe that your children should not be baptized was a capital offense in the Netherlands in the 1530s for one simple reason. It was treason. Now, with regard to the Lord's Supper, it's a little more theologically indirect. You have England. Will it be a Catholic country or a Protestant country? That's an open question today though the Church of England is Protestant. Not everybody thinks it should be. But then, Henry, Edward, Mary, Charles, Elizabeth, it was back and forth, Protestant and Catholic, Protestant and Catholic, and they were killing each other. Protestants killed Catholics, Catholics killed Protestants. Why? Because the state, head of state, was head of church to bring into question a central tenet of a ruling monarch's church doctrine was to bring him into question as the ruler of the land. And that's exactly what happened under Mary's reign. Namely, the central 
act of the Roman Catholic Church was and is the Mass, and at the center of the Mass was and is the real, material, physical, transubstantiated presence of the historic Jesus Christ, incarnate God. And 288 Protestants said, that's not biblical. The body of Jesus Christ is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, not on that table, no matter what a priest says. And they were killed for it. Because you undermine the central tenet of Roman Catholicism and you undermine Mary's authority. So, you need to hear why that was such a big deal to these 288 dying Protestants. Let me read J.C. Ryle again as to what was at stake in that view of the Lord's Supper. They believed the gospel was at stake. Why? Quote, Grant for a moment that the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice and not a sacrament. You spoil the blessed doctrine of Christ's finished work when he died on the cross. A sacrifice that needs to be repeated is not a perfect and complete thing. You spoil the priestly office of Christ. If there are priests that can offer an acceptable sacrifice to God, besides him, the great high priest is robbed of his glory. You overthrow the true doctrine of Christ's human nature. If the body born of a virgin, Mary, can be in more places than one at a time, it is not a body like our own. And Jesus was not the last Adam in the truth of our nature. You see what was at stake? Everything was at stake. The gospel and Christ and the cross were at stake. And therefore, on the basis of these few minutes of introduction, I would venture to say the Lord's Supper is worth two weeks of our attention. Let's humble ourselves. And while we may enjoy a period of history in which we're not killing each other over these things, probably our danger is that we have lost all capacity to weigh things properly at all. They may have gotten things out of balance. We don't even have scales. All goes and nothing is a big deal. And certainly you wouldn't kill anybody or die. So I think we need to hear a summons from the scripture. There might be big things at stake here, not worth killing for but worth dying for. Let's go to the heart of the matter today, and we'll come back and put more practical application from this text around it next week. What does this is my body mean in verse 24 in our text? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-four. It comes from the Gospels, of course. It's repeated three times in three of the Gospels. This is my body. This is my body. This is my body. And then... In verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
or in Matthew and Mark, this is my blood of the covenant. Let's read verses 23 to 26 once more. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now here are the two things I want to do. I want to give four reasons for why that does not mean, this is my body, does not mean the physical, material body of Jesus materializes on the table through the words of consecration under the form of bread and wine. I want to say that's not what these words mean. And then the second thing I want to do is give you three positive meanings that will take us to the table and enable us, I believe, to commune with the Lord in a way that will please him. Argument number one for why this is my body does not mean this bread is transubstantiated into the historic, physical, material body of Jesus. Argument number one, when a person takes an object and says, this is somebody's body, the natural understanding is, this represents the body. Just as if I were to pull out of my wallet a picture of my family and say, That's Talitha. Nobody would assume she has now been incarnated on the paper. This is natural language. You don't have to do any kind of fancy footwork here. When you go to a drama, say a drama of the Civil War, and you say to your child, perhaps, that's Abraham Lincoln. There's no thought in anybody's head about reincarnation here or materialization. Or you children who who have read perhaps the Chronicles of Narnia. If you haven't read it, tell mom and dad, would you read me what the pastor said you were supposed to read to me? <laughs> C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. When, you, when, when your parents read that to you, they might one day say, pointing at Aslan, that's Jesus. It doesn't mean Jesus became a lion. It means in this story, Aslan represents Jesus. Jesus was there and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. A very natural way is to say, this represents my body. Now, this is very interesting. In fact, I would recommend that you do this. Go on the internet this afternoon, type into Google, Catholic Catechism and get the contemporary authoritative Catholic Catechism from the Catholic sites. And then click on the Eucharist in the Catholic Catechism. I have no problem with the word Eucharist. It it comes from Eucharist, the Greek, which means give thanks. It's just taken from when he had taken bread, he gave thanks. 
and then read it. And what you will find is as it talks about the body of Christ, it will say it represents Christ. One catch. Represent is always spelled with a hyphen. Represent. The reason it's always spelled with a hyphen is because they know that if you use it without a hyphen, it means what I say it means. If you use it with a hyphen, it literally means re-present in physical material form. So don't, don't be misled by thinking, oh, they use the word represent, represent also. They do, but the hyphen signals the difference, and it is a world of difference. That's argument number one. It's just a natural way to read it. Argument number two, that this is my body doesn't mean a physical, literal presence of the historic body of Jesus. If it were to mean that, you would think that in verse 25, you would apply the same kind of meaning to the word is when it says this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Nobody does that. Nobody takes this cup is the new covenant to mean the new covenant is somehow transubstantiated into a cup. Everybody knows what this means. The cup stands for the content of the cup, the wine, the fruit of the vine. The fruit of the vine stands for the blood, and the blood bought the covenant. Everybody knows what that means, that that's what it means. This cup is the covenant, means this cup containing the wine, which represents the blood, which was shed to purchase the benefits of the new covenant, is the glorious thing to hold in our hands and to drink together. And so the inconsistency between taking the is of verse 24 and the is of verse 25, I think, is a problem for that view. Third argument. And here I invite you to go with me to John chapter 6. I take you over to the Gospel of John chapter 6 because those who have a view of the body of Christ in the Lord's Supper as being physically present use this text as one of their strongest arguments. And I think verse 63 in John 6 points us exactly in the opposite direction. So let's follow the context beginning at verse 48. Jesus is speaking in the synagogue and he is talking about himself as the bread of life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Now we all know what that means. Right? Well, maybe we don't, but there it is. I'm bread. I am bread. And then he talks about eating this bread, and it gets very gruesome before he's done. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my Flesh. Now that sounds very shocking to the Jews, and in verse 52, they're just, they, they, they don't know what to make of this. And so Jesus responds in verse 53 Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, that verse right there would be a key argument for why 
the sacrament of the Mass must involve the literal blood and the literal body of Jesus physically so that the people under the consecrating words of the priest can eat it and have eternal life. That's the key verse. There it is. What more could we ask? Now, he realizes that his own disciples at this point are shocked. Verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to such talk? Who can listen to this? And then, to his disciples now, alone, he gives them the key. How not to interpret what he just said. Verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, I think what Jesus is doing for his disciples is a very merciful protection against a misreading of those gross words, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and you'll have life. I mean, they're just saying, we are not cannibals. What talk is this? And he says, Don't be like Nicodemus. Remember that? Same issue going on here. Says to Nicodemus, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus says, all right, yeah, crawl up into your mother's womb again. How are you going to do that? And Jesus kind of, you know, can't I use image? Can't I use figures with anybody around here? Unless you're born of the Spirit. And here he says, look, The flesh, I've been talking about flesh. The flesh avails nothing. If I could show up there, it wouldn't do you any good. My words are spirit. My words are life. Don't you get it? That's my third argument. I think verse 63 is given to warn against the very interpretation that's put on these verses. Now, here's my fourth argument. Stay right here in verse Uh, 35 of chapter 6 of John. Let's go to 35 because here Jesus, and I think the reason Jesus went to such awful lengths in using the language of flesh and blood is because they didn't get it in verse 35 and he was going to be harder to get later in the chapter. But here you have in verse 35, I think, a robust, strong, full, beautiful statement of what it means to eat and drink Jesus. So let's read this. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So he says, here I am. I'm bread and I am drink. Have at me. But how? How do you get the bread and how do you get the drink? How do you satisfy your soul with Jesus? Two answers. Come to me and believe in me. Those are the two words. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. In other words, believing is made the issue here. That's the issue at this table. The issue here is a feeding upon the bread of life, Jesus Christ, by faith. 
It feeds our souls as we commune with Christ the bread, commune with Christ the living water and the fruit of the vine. So what is faith? It's drawing near and receiving and trusting and savoring and being satisfied with all that Jesus is. Those are my four reasons. So you weigh as to whether you think they're sufficient. I'm not a Roman Catholic. I think it's a dangerous doctrine. Somebody, we prayed for lots of people after the first service who have, who love, I mean, have Roman Catholics in their family. There's, there are numerous ones of you sitting in this church who are Roman Catholic, probably. You need to know uh, that I believe there are ways to link arms in common cause. I am delighted with what the Pope just said about gay marriage. Amen. Say it. He's got a platform. Speak the truth. I approve. I'm thankful that I can link arms into the pro-life cause. Catholics are better at it usually than us Protestants. We need to be able to say the both and here. You need not think that because I'm saying a very critical thing about the center of the mass, which I am, which I think will explode the whole system eventually, that I somehow get bent out of shape and can't hobnob with Father Forlidi down at Sinoa. That's another sermon, perhaps. <laughs> Francis Schaeffer used the term co-belligerency. It's a good word. It means... Uh, we have a secular culture. There are numerous evils in it. Catholics see them as evil. Protestants see them as evil. And you can become co-belligerents against a common foe. All the while, I hope, at least I want to say out loud, when I go and pray with Catholics over in front of the Planned Parenthood over on Ford Parkway, I'm, I want to say out loud, here's where I stand. If they let me stand there and say where I stand, that's fine, no problem. Okay, let's move toward the table with three statements of what it does mean, not what it doesn't mean. What do the words, this is my body, mean? Or this is my blood? Verse 26, back at 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I think when Jesus says, this is my body, He's saying this, by this representation, you will proclaim that I died for sinners and will come again. Next week, we'll talk about how is the come again part implicit here, but at least explicit is I died for sinners. By this representation of my body, you are proclaiming the gospel. You are saying Christ Jesus died for sinners. Everyone who believes may be forgiven, saved, and have eternal life at home with the creator of the universe. That's what's being spoken by the body represented in the bread. Secondly, in verse 24 and 25, you read, Do this in remembrance of me. Now, I put them in this order because I believe that when the bread and the blood 
beautifully, powerfully represent Christ crucified and bleeding and proclaim him, what that does is bring to our remembrance Christ. The meaning of this is my body is the representation of my body is meant by proclaiming the gospel to bring Christ to remembrance. Now I wish... I almost built the whole sermon around this word remembrance, and I will say more about this next week. But here, let me outline the sermon. You know, sacramental folks who maybe would say they're more sacramental than we are, build more of life around the sacraments, they look at us sometimes and say, oh, you Baptists, you free church, low church folks, you, you don't have any sense of mystery, you don't have any sense of wonder, you don't have any sense of of uh, seriousness about the Lord's Supper. That's probably true too often, isn't it? Well, they probably think, and maybe we've given them warrant to think, that the words, do this in remembrance of me, means, as you go to the table, call to mind a few historical facts And think about them. (laughs) No wonder they would look at that and say, you don't even understand communion with God. That is not what I hear in the words, remember me. I hear, and I just walk through the text, I hear, Remember me being betrayed in the night in which he was betrayed. Remember me being betrayed and that I didn't hit Judas in the face. I carried right through. I subdued every cry for justice in my heart and went straight to the cross for Judas or anybody who would believe in me. Remember me that way. Remember me sitting at table and eating with my disciples who will all forsake me before I am done this very night. Loving them, weeping over them, showing them the meaning of my love for them. Picture me sitting with them and then you sit there with me in your hearts. I picture me and remember me giving thanks. To whom? The God who planned my crucifixion. That's whom. Picture me giving thanks to the God who planned it all down to the details of whether my coat would be ripped or not and whether I would be broken in my bone or not or only pierced with swords and thorns and nails. Picture me thanking him. Picture that. Remember that at the Lord's table. Or remember me breaking the bread and saying, This is my body. Picture me breaking the bread and remember me breaking it because as I choose to break it, I choose to be broken for you. Remember that I said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord and if I lay it down, I can take it again. Remember me that way. Remember those words and that breaking and remember me bleeding that your sins might be forgiven. 
And remember me suffering to purchase the covenant for you. And remember me saying, I will not eat of this again until I eat it new in the kingdom of heaven. Remember, I am sovereign over this whole affair. I'm coming out. I will sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. And millions will flow to me from the the four corners of the earth. And we will sit at table and eat and drink. Remember that Word, And so let your mind go in two directions back, loving me and forward, hoping in me. And by this, and this is number three now, the third meaning. The first one was proclamation. The second one was remembrance. And by the proclamation and the remembrance of all that Jesus is for us, By faith, feed on him. I just go back to John 6.35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is my body means by this representation of my body broken and my blood spilled, by this representation Hear the proclamation of the gospel. Be reminded of what kind of great Savior I am. And in all of that proclamation and in all of that mental and heart reminding, now spiritually eat. And right here, probably in this room, the ways divide. Because this is a miracle that some of you have not yet tasted. And I want you to. I pray right now that God would awaken the taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. It's not just think and see that the Lord is good. It's taste with what? With spiritual taste buds. There is a capacity in the newborn human soul that is different from the tongue and is more crucial to be fed And it's fed with Christ, the living Christ, by His Spirit, in conjunction with these representations. We now, by faith, and I take faith to mean a being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. By this faith, we welcome Christ to the satisfaction of our souls, to the removal of our ache. Every human in this room has an ache made for God in your heart. You may have been pushing it down and pushing it down and pushing it down with all kinds of entertainment and all kinds of power plays and all kinds of misbehavior or good behavior. Only one thing will satisfy. Christ tasted. Christ tasted. And I know that some are sitting there saying, I don't even have a category in my brain for that language. So, let's pray.